Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Would you take out your Bibles with me, please, and open them up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. Matthew, chapter 13. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service. It's important that you have a copy of God's Word with you. That you're in it, you're reading it, studying it every day. Matthew 13, we continue. Got about, oh, a little, little under halfway through Matthew 13 last week, talking about the parable of the sower. And as our introduction, and as we talked about chapter 13 as a whole, we, we talked about the fact that Jesus is now speaking to first a large multitude, and then towards the end of our study today, we'll see that he's talking specifically directly to a, a group of his disciples but he's using parables. And parables are stories or illustrations that, that the people that are hearing can relate to, that they can understand, that they can point to in their everyday lives or their everyday experiences. But it's not just clever stories. They're not, they're not funny jokes. They're, they're designed with a purpose, and the purpose is a heavenly, divine purpose. They are earthly events that point to heavenly truth. And Jesus said that these truths that are going to be revealed to us and to the disciples and to the crowds that were hearing this, these truths were mysteries about the kingdom of heaven. Mysteries, things that had been concealed up until this point as Jesus is now revealing them to the people that are hearing. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Again, speaking spiritually. Hear what it is, these spiritual truths. These things that have been hidden from very godly people throughout the Old Testament, prophets and godly saints that longed to have this understanding. Jesus is saying, listen up, because I'm going to reveal these things to you. Now, we mentioned these are the, the kingdom parables, if you would, speaking of the kingdom of heaven, synonymous with the kingdom of God that is referred to again throughout the New Testament, two phrases that are used to describe the same thing. As a matter of fact, kingdom of heaven, this phrase we'll see many times in this, this chapter and throughout the Gospel of Matthew is unique to the Gospel of Matthew. Kingdom of God is used in the other Gospel accounts, and that's primarily because of the audience, the primary audience, that Matthew is teaching to. Matthew, if you'll remember, back to our introduction into Matthew, Matthew wrote his Gospel primarily to a Jewish audience, to Jewish believers. And the Jews were raised from their very early age to have such a reverence for God, so much so that they wouldn't even speak his name. So to say the kingdom of God was kind of a little bit off the, out of bounds, if you would. So they used the term kingdom of heaven. Now to a Gentile audience, it was more kingdom of God that they could relate to as opposed to heaven. This idea of, of heaven to them was different. So they used kingdom of God, but again, synonymous. Speaking of God's sovereign rule of grace in the world. And as we have spoken, this was a mystery to this point. This was, these were things that were foretold by the prophets, future events to the Old Testament prophets. But Jesus said that his ministry, his coming, was the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. He was introducing it. He said in Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he gives us a little bit of a, a glimpse, if you would, in Luke 16, 16, even into what we're going to look at today when he said, the law and prophets were proclaimed until John, and that's John the Baptist, 
Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Saying again, dividing this time, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But a clear dividing point here. And he said, up until this point, the law and the prophets. Now, going forward, the kingdom of God. He says something interesting, that everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, as we mentioned last week, the kingdom of heaven is not referring to heaven someday, some, somewhere out there. No, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is at hand. It is among you. And we see that this forcing their way into it can be looked at from a few different facets. I believe both correct. One, that we as believers are to take this on as a, as a call that we are to be going out. This is a battle that we fight. We're going to see in a few chapters as, as, as Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said on that statement, based on that statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Forcing into enemy territory, if you would, with the gospel message. But also forcing their way into it and more applicable and pointed to our first couple of parables we're going to look at this morning, that the enemies of God also force their way into the kingdom of God here on earth. So with with that understanding that he's focusing on the present aspect a lot in our, in our parables, the present aspect of the kingdom of heaven, but it will be perfectly realized only at his second coming. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Anyone else anxious for that moment? Yeah, amen. <laughs> well, with that, as a little understanding, again, we, we begin to look at the kingdom parables. Verse 24, Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now Jesus, after this, in the next few verses, goes on to, to speak of another couple of parables. We're going to come back to those in a moment, but look with me down to verse 36, because Jesus explains the parable that we just read. It says, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. 
And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they, were, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus again calling attention to all of us. Listen to what is being said. Listen with your spiritual ears. Understand the spiritual truth behind this. Now, this parable, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, comes right on the heels of the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. Now, there are many similarities, but there are differences as we compare the two and we look at them. We see Jesus describes here the field that is sown into is the world. And the first sower, the one that is sowing the good seed, is Jesus. Last week, the seed, Jesus told us, is the word of God. Here, Jesus tells us that the seed that is being sown are the sons of the kingdom. Now, though that is a difference, I believe that there is a direct correlation between the two. Last week, we talked about the fact that the seed that goes out, the word of God, it falls, one of the, one of, some of the seed falls on fertile, good soil. And the seed then goes down deep into the soil and it penetrates and it draws nutrients from the soil and it grows up healthy and produces fruit. That, that seed is the seed then that the, the, the sons of God, the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom are produced by adhering to the word of God. Now we look here, there's a second one that is out sowing. And that, Jesus says, is the devil. He is sowing seed as well, and it tells us that those, those seeds are the sons of evil. Now, the sons of the kingdom are produced by adhering to the word of God. The sons of evil are produced by altering the word of God. This has been this, the, this way of the enemy since the very beginning. This is not a new trick. This is not something new that he just came up with. Matter of fact, maybe, maybe you've heard this before. As a Christian, when you're, when you're out sharing your faith or if somebody knows that you're a Christian and they'll come up to you with this question, well, if God is so loving, why is there evil in the world? Anybody heard that, that question? Well, here, the plain and simple truth, the bottom line is God did not create evil. People, people that, that's the thing. Well, if God created everything, he created evil. God did not create evil. God, however, did allow a choice. He did allow man to make a choice. He allowed the possibility of evil because he gave us all a free will. He gave us the ability to choose to adhere to God's word or to alter it or reject it. He gave us his perfect word. And the enemy will continually sow and work on that aspect of it questioning and calling into account God's word. Again, nothing new. Turn with me all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Perhaps even like in your, my Bible, it's yours. Page 3. All the way back. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, that is Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. We see here Satan taking on the form of a serpent coming to Eve in the garden again, all the way back in the beginning. Now, I know, perhaps you're thinking too, you know, like if you're out gardening this week, out doing some, some work in the garden, and a snake comes, serpent comes, I don't know about you, but I'm running. I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm certainly not going to stand there and have a conversation with the snake. <laughs> but we need to understand, very different then. There was no animosity between Adam and Eve and any of the animals, and here this serpent comes, and, and starts speaking with Eve. And notice it says, more crafty than any other beast. That word is interesting. It means shrewd, means subtle, sly. First we see what he does is he twists the word of God. He takes what God said and he twists it, trying to just throw a little bit of doubt in there. Did God really say and if he really said it, did he really mean that? I mean, isn't there a bunch of different ways that we could look at this? I mean, he did say that a few days ago. I mean, times are different today. I mean, couldn't it, couldn't it be that things have changed? Trying to just throw just a little twist, questioning God's word. Did he really say that? And it leads ultimately in verse 4 to outright denying what God said. He says, you will not surely die. God said the day that you eat of it, you will die. You won't die. Again, the enemy, twisting, denying. Ultimately, he is trying to change Eve's view here, but certainly our view of God, making him more restrictive, less loving, trying to get us to question again, distort our views so that we can be deceived and ultimately disobey. And Immediately engaging in the conversation, Eve falls right into it. Notice in verse 2, it says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. If we look back at verse 16 of chapter 2, we see what God said. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Freely. Taking away from God's word. Taking away from God's promises. He said... There's, there's one tree in the middle. Don't, don't eat from that one. But everything else you can eat freely. You can have all the fruit and you can have it abundantly. The enemy wants us to, to, to take away from that. Jesus tells us that coming to him, living with him, following him, we will have life and have it abundantly. The, the deception is, well, you're going to have to give up this, you're going to have to give up that, twisting God's word, taking away from what God said. 
But notice it doesn't just stop there. Verse 3 of chapter 3, Eve said, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. If we look back at verse 17 of chapter 2, God speaking, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Nothing mentioned about touching it, but adding to the word of God, adding rules, adding things. Satan doesn't care. As long as he can get us to, to change God's word, to not adhere to it as it is written, as it is spoken, to ultimately, again, change our view of God. Guys, it's a battle for our minds. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The simplicity and the purity. Now I say that as, with regards to the parable that Jesus is teaching, because again, we need to understand, this is how the seeds of the sons of evil, the ones that the Satan is throwing out there, get there. And they grow up as tares, and tares are a, a weed that looks very much like wheat in its early stages grows up right next to it in the same garden as we see, right alongside one another. And they look, they look again, look genuine, look like the real deal. And that is why it can be so deceptive. Not only deceiving others into believing, yeah, they're just like us, but deceiving themselves. Hey, I'm just like everybody else. I'm here hanging out with Christians. I look like them, say the same things they do. I heard it said this way, there's three kinds of people. There's those that is, there's those that ain't, and there's those that ain't that think they is. <laughs> Deceiving themselves by just looking around and saying, hey, I walk like them, I talk like them, I look just like them. Now Jesus, saying this, back in, back in our text in Matthew, points to the fact that this will be something that is in in the church, and it doesn't take forever for that to get going. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, said, when I leave, beware, because from amongst your very number, amongst you, there will rise up among you wolves, ravenous wolves. Jude, when he was writing to the, the, his short letter, he said I, I contend, that we must contend earnestly for the faith because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Again, all going back to the word of God. That is why at Calvary Chapel, we here, and Calvary Chapel is a staple going back to the very beginning of Calvary Chapel, is that we simply teach the word of God simply. All of it, in its entirety, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, beginning to end, the entire counsel of God, not changing, not avoiding, not watering down anything that the word of God says. What does it say? What does it mean? How do we apply it? The entire gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are preaching the entire gospel, you must talk about sin. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Many, many, many churches avoid even talking about sin because it might offend somebody. Well, if me talking about sin offends you, good. 
That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's not me. Repentance, turning from sin and turning, turning to Jesus. Jesus said that following him involves a cost, and you need to count that cost. We need to die to ourselves. That is the, to- the totality of the gospel. One thing that is so often left out is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is King. The word, the word that is used more than any other to describe Jesus in the New Testament is the Greek word kurios. It's used 747 times in the New Testament, and it means Lord, absolute ruler, one who owns somebody else. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, that word is used to describe Jesus 92 times. Savior is used to describe Jesus in the book of Acts twice. Now, that does not reduce his role as Savior. He is the only Savior, the only mediator. But it certainly draws our attention to the fact that he must be Lord as well. Now, I want to show you something that I found pretty fascinating this week. This is a picture of a tear. This is what a tear looks like when it's bearing fruit. This is a picture of wheat when it is bearing fruit. It tells us, Jesus said in his parable, it says, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Do you notice a big difference between the two? Other than the color. How about their posture? Look at the tear. Look at the wheat. Bowing. Humbly. The tares standing firm. Yeah, I'll take this savior thing, but I'm still in charge of my life. But those true followers of Jesus humbly bowing before their king. Now, I don't know if that was Jesus' point or not, but it sure hit me hard. (laughs) The watered-down gospel produces tares. We need to teach the whole word of God. But notice, too, in in our text... God's great concern for the wheat. He said, don't go out and root up the tares. Don't go looking, don't go go inspecting and pulling out because in that you could damage some wheat. You can, where their roots may have gotten entangled together. So don't you worry about that. That's not your job. That will be taken care of in the end. Jesus speaks of the end. In verses 41 to 43, he describes it very graphically. He tells us that there are only two paths. There's lawlessness and there's righteousness. There's only two ways to live your life, lawless or righteous. Lawless, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear. If you, have been, if you are guilty in one aspect of the law, you have broken and gu- are guilty of all of it. And so many can be deceived. So many can deceive themselves into thinking everything's okay. Jesus speaking of this time when these three verses will take place, back in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus was talking of that time and he said, on that day, many will come to me and say, Jesus, Lord, Lord, Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all sorts of great stuff in your name? 
Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But their other path is righteousness. Not self-righteousness. I believe we've kind of blown up that theory. All of our righteousness is but filthy rags. Not self-righteousness, but clothed in his righteousness. Again, surrendering humbly to our king. He became sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Humbly. Humbly saying, it's nothing that I bring, Lord. It's all, it's all your finished work on my behalf, and I give you my life. Two paths, lawlessness, righteousness. Two destinations, and only two, heaven and hell. There's not some in-between place who says, and people say, well, I'm not playing that game. There's only two destinations. Jesus clearly describes hell, furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says in another place, it's a place where the worm does not die, where the fire is never quenched. People say all the time, you know, well, if God is such a God of love, why would he send anyone to hell? God does not send anyone to hell. He loves you so much that he died in your place so that you don't have to go there. He didn't create hell for, for humans. For mankind, he created hell for Satan and the fallen angels. And his desire is that no one would go. Not one man. Not one woman. And he loves us so much that he gives us such a graphic detail of it. But praise the Lord, there's another destination. A destination that righteousness leads to, and that's eternal glory. That is beyond what words can even express. And that is ours, our inheritance forever. And God loves us so much that he explains this detail to us and gives us, again, the choice. He continues after the parable of the wheat and the tares to illustrate, again, this, this idea of the, the kingdom here on earth in a couple of other ways, verse 31, he said, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Taken in context, again, as Jesus is speaking of this and then explaining the tares later, Matthew puts this together for us. We see that, first of all, that understanding, too, that when he speaks of this mustard seed and growing into a great tree, that, trees come, that birds come from all over and nest in its branches, that 
a Jewish person hearing that would immediately understand that that's not a normal mustard seed. That's not normal growth for a mustard plant because mustard doesn't grow into mustard trees, it grows into mustard bushes. And the, 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 the tree that birds that maybe might be able to make a nest in a mustard bush is a sparrow, one. <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have a multi-unit sparrow complex in a mustard bush. So Jesus here is speaking of this supernatural growth, unprecedented growth of the kingdom of God, of the church as it goes. And we see that. We see that happening immediately, even under immense persecution, the church grew. But then it grew to a point where even the, the, the Roman government embraced it and made it the official religion, and it grew throughout the entire world. But with that, corruption certainly comes in. Birds throughout the Bible are, are referred to as even emissaries of the devil. So certainly, again, pointing in context as he was just talking about the wheat and the tares, birds coming from all over, making their nests in this as it grows. The other parable, the three measures of, of meal or of flour, again, exorbitantly large for one woman to be cooking. This is starting with 50 pounds of flour, roughly, imagine the bread that could be made from that, certainly not to feed one family. So speaking of its growth, leaven throughout the, the Bible is referred to as, as sin, impurity. They were, again, a Jewish audience. You mention leaven, they're going to get it right away. There's to be no leaven at all in the meal offering that is brought to God. Again, as we bring our offerings to God, we need to confess and deal with sin in our life. The, the entire house needed to be swept out during the Passover time to make sure that there wasn't one grain of leaven in the house because, again, it pointed to sin. Notice that, it's, that it is hidden in the flower. She hid it. It's concealed, but it spread and permeated throughout. Jesus is going to tell us in a couple of chapters when we get into Matthew chapter 16 to beware to watch out for, to be careful and notice the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the ones that took the law of God and added and added and added and added all sorts of other rules and regulations. Jesus says, beware of that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, another sect of the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in heaven, which is why they are sad, do you see? <laughs> so they take away from the clear teaching of God's word. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of adding to the word of God and taking away from the word of God. Again, as we see, tying this together. Well, verse 34 and 35 Jesus says, all these things, Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. We discussed this last week. And he did not speak to them outside, speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew pointing out as he does over and over throughout the gospel how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the coming Messiah, proving that he is the one. Well, we see, now skipping ahead here to verse 44, Jesus giving another now 
parable. Now he is now with his disciples. Remember back in 36, it tells us that he left the crowds and his disciples came to him. So he has a smaller audience. And he's now going to reveal another treasure or another angle, mystery of the kingdom of heaven. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. The parable here of the hidden treasure. The field, again, is the world. The man is Jesus. The treasure is not the world, but is what is in the world. And that is us. That's you and I. Let me ask you a question. When you're thinking of the value of something, the value of a treasure, the value of something, what determines its value? I mean, we've all heard the expression, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But how do we arrive at a value of something? Well, first, the person who owns something or the person who is owed something for that would determine its value. That would be an important aspect of determining the value. What do I mean? Well, we have, have kind of gone through that even as a church. Many of you maybe even wonder or have asked the direct question, what about that bank building on the corner that's right on our property or right on the edge of our property? It's sitting right there. It's empty. Nobody's ever moved into it. It hasn't even been finished. Why don't we buy that? Wouldn't that be a great addition to our campus? And sure, it would be. And we've actually engaged in conversation with the credit union who owns it. We've even gone to the point of ordering an appraisal to get the appraised value of it. And we brought the appraisal to them and wanted to sit down and discuss it. And they laughed us right out of the room. They said, we want at least five times what that appraisal says. There's no way. It's not be a waste of our time to talk. Now, it does not matter if every one of us went there and said, we don't think that's fair, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what we all think. The one who owns it is the one who determines the initial value. The one who is owed something is the one who determines the value. You know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It doesn't matter if all of us in this room all get together and we say, you know what, we don't think that's fair. We don't think that's right. We think that's too high a price. It doesn't matter. Because Almighty God, holy, righteous, Almighty God said, the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, there's a second piece to the equation as to, as to what the value of something is. The second part of the equation is that there needs to be somebody who's willing to pay that price. Now, to illustrate that, to help us understand that, how many in this room think that professional athletes are worth what they get paid? Okay, one. All right. Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is, he's right. Because somebody's paying them that. Just because all of us in this room think that's ridiculous, the ownership of the Seattle Seahawks thinks Russell Wilson's worth the money they're giving him. That's just the way it works. So there has to be a coming together and understanding of this as to who, who determines that. You remember, 
you remember a couple years ago, 10 years ago maybe now, Luis Gonzalez, outfielder for the Arizona Diamondbacks during spring training, took a piece of bubble gum out of his mouth and threw it to the side. Do you remember, anybody else remember that? Somebody picked it up, put it on eBay. $10,000. Not kidding, not kidding. Somebody thought Luis Gonzalez's gum worth 10 grand. Now, none of us would probably give a nickel for it. So what's my point? Well, Jesus said this, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. God said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Peter tells us that we have not been redeemed by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. You are immensely valuable to God. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care if, if, if you believe or if, if you probably couldn't find anyone that would, that would pay 25 cents for you. Jesus paid it all for you. That's how valuable you are to him. That's how precious you are in his sight. And I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Quite frankly, it doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> because Jesus loves you so much. You are invaluable to him. So much so that he gave it all. And not reluctantly, not kicking and screaming, but joyfully. Notice, look again in the text here, in verse 44, and from joy over it, joy over the treasure. The author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him is you and me in heaven forever with him. Doesn't make any sense to me either. But it does to him. That's all that matters. Jesus goes on, reinforcing the same statement, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, Almighty God, obviously the merchant, the one out seeking. He is the seeker. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost, the pearl, us. Selling all that he had, giving it all to buy that pearl, to redeem that pearl. Jesus paid it all. And because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe Everything of mine, I owe to him. Everything, all of me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He said, the world will know that you're mine if you love one another. He said, love one another as I have loved you. He said, greater love has no one than this, than he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. 1 John three sixteen. we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down our lives for one another. That very practically means your needs are more important to me than mine. 
putting my life under yours. We do that together. We unite together. Again, we talk of this a lot. It grieves the Lord that his body would be divided, that there would be any division at all in the church. You know, one unique thing about a pearl when it comes to the gems, it's one that is never cut. Diamonds get more beautiful when you cut them and and do all of these different things. A pearl, you cut a pearl in half, Well, verse 47, our last of the parables, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up onto the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, we have the parable of the dragnet. (laughs) You know, I didn't think when I first when I thought of that yesterday. I thought that was really funny. I had a really funny, but I'd never thought how to transition from there. And I still am struggling with that. Anyway. <laughs> Our last parable, Jesus pointing to the ed- end of the age. Again, we've discussed this back in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus is saying that all will be gathered together. All. Everyone. This is, again, Jesus making it very clear. You cannot sit here and say, you know what, I'm going to sit that out. You guys can all do this type of thing. That's not for me. You don't have a choice. That's not, it's, it's not a choice of whether you will be gathered or not. The choice that you have to make is what are you going to do with Jesus? You have a choice as to where you will spend eternity. You don't have a choice as to sit out the the time of judgment, the time of separation that Jesus clearly talks about here. All will be gathered in. And the bottom line is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is when. You can do it now freely with the free will that God has given you. And doing that, surrendering your life and giving your life to him means that you get eternal life forever. And starting right now, you have life and have it abundantly. You can start living the promises that Jesus has for us in his word. Or you can wait until the day that you will be forced to kneel before Jesus and profess him as Lord, but then it will be too late. Then your eternal destiny, as Jesus again describes, is the fiery furnace, a place of eternal torment beyond what anything that we could describe or imagine. But again, that is not God's heart that any go there. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. You've been given a choice. Don't harden your heart anymore. 
If that's you here today and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, do not ignore it. God loves you so much that his spirit right now is testifying in your heart. His desire is for you today to come to repentance, to come to knowing him. Do not leave here today without making a decision to make him Lord of your life. Well, as we close here, the last two verses, verse 51, 52. Verse 51, Jesus says, Have you understood all these things, speaking to disciples? And they said to him, Yes. Anybody buying that? (laughs) But what would you say? Yeah, yeah, got it, yep. (laughs) Remember, we're we're dealing with some older teenagers, young 20s, the disciples, we talked about that. And here Jesus revealing this truth to them. But I will say that I'm sure that their hearts were receptive and and they did understand a large part of what Jesus was saying. And one of the things I want to point out to that is God wants us to understand He wants us to grasp these truths. He's not, again, some big cosmic hide-and-seek guy that's, you know, oops, I win, I win. No, he wants us to find these gems, these treasures. And I think the key, look back at verse 36. It says, his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parables, the parable of the tares in the field. They came with a heart that said, God, I want to know. I want to know what what it means. They came with a heart that didn't come with a preconceived notion that said, I got this figured out. Would you confirm this for me? How many times do we go to God like that in his word? Saying, all right, God, this is what I want to have happen. Show me a verse that lines up with it. Or do we come and say, God, I'm an empty page. Show me what you would have for me. Reveal to me your truth. What do you want me to learn today? I'm so blessed when people come up to me, and it happens a lot, and they say, you will never guess what God showed me in his word today, and so excited, and then sharing that with each other. That's what Jesus tells them to do. Look at verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Guys, do you realize this is a treasure we hold? the living word of God. And as we go to the Lord in our time and in his word, he reveals things new to us. We need to share those things. We need to share these mysteries, these things that we, that are, that we understand. Paul talks of the mystery of the fact that, that Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we've been grafted in to these, this amazing relationship. These, the, sharing these truths, the old the Old Testament, we, we don't just study the New Testament. We need to study the entire counsel of God's word. Wednesday nights, if you're not familiar, we have a Wednesday night Bible study here, and we go through the Old Testament, same way we do a New Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I'm blessed every week as we open God's, the, the history. But we're in 1 Samuel now, and every week it's amazing the truths of God's word that are so applicable today. Jesus said, all of the Old Testament scriptures, all of the prophets pointed to him, all of it. And as we study and as that is revealed to us, we are to share that, share it with one another, encourage one another with the word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.